You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining us, as always, it's your friend and mine from MMAJunkie.com and USA Today. Ben Folks is here, ladies and gentlemen. Ben, uh, this is Co-Main Event Podcast After Dark. Yeah, well, and just literally after dark, thanks to it being winter in Montana. So, you know, anytime after like 4 p.m. is after dark. Yeah, we're recording this podcast about two hours later uh, than we normally do because life. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, you know, it's coming event podcast ever dark. I've, oh, yeah. I've got my shirt unbuttoned about three buttons um, and I'm, I'm wearing a giant uh, pendant. You've got a turtleneck and a, uh, a razor thin chain. I like to on. keep it classy. I can tell by your turtleneck and chain that you bone. <laughs> I am totally down to bone. That's true. Also, though, in addition to it being CME after dark, the last CME of 2013. That's, Soak it in. That's right. Yeah, no. So it's a special occasion on on two different fronts. And to celebrate, uh, you and I are both uh, sitting here drinking some beer that we received in the mail this past week from friend of the podcast and former UFC fighter, Danny Boy Downs. That's right. Danny Boy Downs. Not only did he send us beer, he sent his very own typed up. Uh, I would have thought he was, you know, a scrawled serial killer handwriting style kind of guy, but no, typed up and printed us out his own little tasting notes about each beer, comparing each one to an MMA fighter equivalent. That's right. If I had to guess, I would say this is probably uh, Helvetica 12 point. Good on eye. The, on the body copy. Good an eye for that. Uh, also, Somebody used to be a newspaperman. Danny, Danny Downs, extremely proficient at sending beer through the mail. I was really impressed with his packing job. I, I would hazard a guess that this is not his first rodeo. Well, you know, I actually uh, was in Las Vegas for USC 168 this past weekend, as was Danny Downs. We had a chance to, uh, to get together for some, some spirits, some cocktails uh, while we were in Las Vegas. I'll tell you, that guy, he's real cut up. At Danny Downs. He's quite a character. He's a character? He's a character. Quite well, a card. Currently, I am drinking Pliny the Elder, which Danny Downs describes as, This beer used to be the darling double IPA of the craft beer nerds online. While still highly regarded, many of those same people on the forums have come to describe it as either, quote, overrated or just not as good as some of the current DIPAs on the market. Basically, it's the beer equivalent of Fedor Emelianenko. And you, which one are you drinking? I'm drinking, well, this, he doesn't actually say which one this is. Oh, but are, you, are you drinking the Lagunitas? Yes. Okay, he, the, so the one that Ben is drinking is described as a NorCal-based brewery with an affinity for marijuana. They even have a beer called Censored because the original name, Chronic, with a K, uh, was deemed inappropriate by the Alcohol Control Board. The founder and CEO is an interesting character who is quite opinionated, but often says questionable things that get him in trouble. MMA equivalent? You know who. Yes, we do. And of course, I'm, I mean, you give me a choice, I'm going to go with the Nick Diaz of beers. Yes, I know that about you. You are. Uh, I have to say, Pliny the Elder, pre pretty damn good. Yeah, I, I've got no complaints with this one either. I mean, Danny Downs, clearly a man who, who knows his beer. Uh, and we should also say that this week we also received a, a gift from uh, probably the Come In Event Podcast's most thoughtful listener, uh, Claire Hammond, who uh, sends us gifts on most 
uh, gift-giving holidays. This time around, she made a donation in the name of the Co-Main Event podcast to a charity that provides literacy classes in South Africa. Right. So, so, you're, so you're welcome, South Africa. That's nation of South Africa. That's number one. Awesome. And Learn to fucking read, you guys, on us. Number two, probably the only positive thing that has ever come from this show. Definitely the most positive thing that will ever come from it. Yeah. Uh, so there's there's rumors out there that we're going to be getting some other stuff in the mail. Uh, we've had some people make some promises. I uh, haven't, haven't received any of it yet. But yeah, it sounds like some people... Letting their mouths write checks that their butts can't cash. You know uh, what I'm saying? So I'm hoping that maybe next week somebody's supposed to be sending us some some Turkish delight. Uh, oh, that's right. I, under uh, the stipulation that we taste it live on the air. I don't look forward to that, and yet I also kind of do. It's weird. This episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by GoDaddy. Right now, CME listeners can get exclusive deals from GoDaddy.com. You can get one new or transfer.com domain name for only $1.99 for the first year registration with additional years at $9.99. Just visit their website and enter the promo code EVENT or click the GoDaddy banner from comainevent.com, and that'll get you started. Uh, some limitations do apply, so check GoDaddy for details. Again, that's the promo code EVENT, E-V-E-N-T. You're getting better and better at that, man. I do think that's the best I've ever done. Yeah, you know what? I think you have a future as a pitch man. <laughs> I'd like to think so. It might be because we're recording this at your house, we're in a different scenario than we normally are. My, yeah. So you don't have as many distractions, that's is what right. you're saying? My laptop is much further away from me, which I think will probably eventually cause problems, but seem to help for that live read right there. Yeah, hey, whatever you were doing there, just keep doing it. As usual, this week's Co-Main Event podcast comes to you in three rounds. And round number one, so pretty much the worst possible ending at the worst possible time. And in round number two, Ronda Rousey is the biggest star in mixed martial arts. Discuss. See what I did there? You, you flipped it on people. Flipped the script right yeah. there. And in round, round number three, this is the last CME of 2013, a year in MMA that will be remembered for what exactly? We'll talk about all of that. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me? Just saying stuff. And uh, right now, like we always do about this time. We're going to do some listener mail. Listener mail. Well, the first piece of listener mail comes to us from uh, longtime listener Darcy LeDrew. He writes, I'm here to do the unthinkable as a UFC critic. I'm here to defend the digital network. I have long been critical of the UFC for attacking pirates, but then asking asking premium uh, prices for old content. The This new website service offers fans access to the library for a modest $10 a month. Uh, in return, you get old pay-per-views, TV shows, and the entire Zufa library. Editor's note, or do you? <laughs> we'll get uh, into that. I, re I really don't think you can justif ju justifiably call yourself a fan now and still pirate their content. Uh, for the price of a McDonald's binge a month, you can go uh, gorge on UFC content. I know you guys are not super supportive, but what are your thoughts on its potential effect on pirates? Ben, I know that you were at the uh, the launch the presentation, the big, the big yeah. time presentation, the PowerPoint or whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, so t uh, I know you've been also been on the the service. So so tell us what's yeah. up. I signed up to get. First of all, I think smart of the UFC to do a couple months free trial there, uh, and the free trial goes until the end of February, starting March first. Then it's ten dollars a month. Conveniently, uh, the Alexander Gustafson Jimmy Manoa fight that will apparently only be available on the digital network unless you know you live in one of the countries where it's covered on the TV deal. Um, that that fights on like March eighth, so 
you know, it gives you a couple months to, to figure out what it's all about uh, and try it out, see the bells and whistles. And then once they get to an actual good live fight and the, you know, from, from what I've heard from UFC people and they've kind of stressed this was that uh, none of those fights are going to be rebroadcast anywhere. Uh, like anywhere on TV if you live in one of the countries where the digital network is available. It's not like you can be like, all right, I'll sit out, and if Gustafson Manoa turns out to be a good fight, it'll end up on Fox Sports 1 or 2 in, in a month or two. They claim no, not ever, uh, that the only way that those fights that air, live on, <clears throat> that air live on the digital network will live permanently on the digital network. So the only way to get it is to pay for it. Um, the thing, though, I think is interesting uh, I think maybe one of our negative reactions to the digital network was that in, internet website. Yeah, <laughs> for one thing, it just sounded like a fancy name for a website. Uh, for another, was that when it was originally pitched, it was like, "Hey, the digital network—that's what you'll be able to see. Awesome free live, like awesome live fight cards, such as the one in Singapore that features a bunch of people we don't even have pictures of." And so we were like, "Yeah, you're telling us that." Fights that are too shitty for TV, we can now pay for? No thanks. I think, though, having played around with it a little bit, that that's not, that's a side bonus of the USC Fight Pass thing. Once you get on there, the access to the library, like, that's, that's what they should be selling. Lorenzo Fertitta at one point during his presentation referred to it as Netflix for the fight fan. That's the sales pitch right there for it. And if you think of it that way, and like, hey, hey, you know, I can watch, you know, Safadine and, and whatever on the Singapore fight card, or I can not watch it. And if I hear it's awesome, I can just go on there and watch it whenever I want to. After that, uh, that's just a, a, a bonus. If you think of it as, hey, this is my thing where I get access to like all the UFC fights, then it's kind of awesome. The problem is, at least right now, you go on there, all the UFC fights are not on there. Yeah, the thing that I've been critical of, I think, is that uh, when the UFC starts to pile more and more programming and more live events on us and tries to treat them like they're all noteworthy in some way, when the truth is, as you mentioned a minute ago, uh, at this point they have five different tiers of live programming. If you go from pay-per-view events all the way down to now shows that are only going to air exclusively on the digital network. And uh, that, you know, that that's a, a system that I feel like just doesn't work. Uh, as for the, the digital network itself, which, by the way, now has a, an even snappier name, it's called Fight Pass. Fight Pass. Uh, I don't think it's a terrible idea, and I think that primarily it's useful as a, a, a research tool. Uh, if they are going to have a lot of old fights on there that that you can search for and find, but uh, well, it's also another thing that's kind of awesome is not just that you can go in there and be like, "Hey, I remember Hughes Trig too. That was awesome," and go watch it. Um, but you can go back and watch uh, full like events, like recent events, and do the thing, uh, which is really fun to do, where you can just like. Click blue corner and you go like the, from the camera angle in the blue corner and you get the audio feed of that guy's coaches throughout the the entire fight. And see that that is legitimately pretty awesome. Yeah, I was just I mean, I've kind of wasted my entire morning uh, watching uh, the Jones Gustafson event and you can go into each person's corner and hear him. I mean, if, if there was a fight where a Diaz is cornering somebody, it's worth it right there because, you know, the kinds of awesome right. shit they say in the corner. Uh, but you know, the thing that the UFC kind of tries to do, and here's my uh, my Dana White formula that I have uh, honed over the years, tells me, wait for the thing that Dana White starts getting mad about and yelling about before anybody else has really brought it up. That'll let you know what the most valid criticism is and, like, what the thing they're most concerned about is. And 
sure enough, at this presentation, the thing he, he launched into a tirade against before anybody else really brought it up uh, was the criticism that these fights, the live fights uh, that are going to be on uh, Fight Pass are not anywhere near the same caliber of USC fights. Basically, the criticism, a completely valid criticism, people have leveled at the Singapore fight card. Um, and here's quotes from Dana White about that. Um, where he says, uh, these aren't different fights. These are the same fights that we put on. They'll be the same caliber level of fighters. Nothing is different. Understand that. These fights aren't different than any other fights we're doing other than that they're in the right time in these people's markets. Clearly not true. Right. If you look yeah. at the Singapore fight card, those are not uh, normal UFC fight night caliber events, which is what Lorenzo Fertitta described this as, as a fight night product. I mean, you get to the one with uh, Gustafson and Manawa and you get a little closer, and who knows, maybe you know they'll more they'll, they'll tend more toward that side of the spectrum uh going forward who knows but it, it does seem like when you're explaining it to us and saying like well we needed more fights for these markets and we needed you know fighters that those people recognize and they in their time zones and that's why we're putting it on you don't get to do that and then also say and it's no different they're completely the same even though you've heard of any of these guys right um i'm not even going to address that claim because i feel like we could spend another 10 minutes uh, ripping that apart, but Just I think everyone saying, knows. Are you fucking kidding me to each other that, over and over again? That's not true. Um, I'm primarily interested in the future of Fight Pass. Uh, I'm not particularly that interested in any of the stuff that's going on with it right now. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think as we move further and further uh, into the future, I think that more of the UFC's emphasis is going to be on these digital broadcasts. Uh, I think more people, more like uh, broadcasters in general, that's going to be like, I think that's where we're moving as in terms right. of watching TV. So, I mean, if we get to the point at some, at some point where I can pay a monthly, a monthly service charge and get all of the UFC's live programming, then I would be totally into it, especially if it'll save me a little bit of money on the, on the pay-per-views. As for right now, I'm not really interested in any of these live shows that they have on there, but I think it's a good service to have for people who somehow do want to spend more of their their personal time watching uh, UFC fights, which I can't imagine, but it does seem like those people are out there because if you're going to have all of those like totally extraneous extracurricular fights, like the best thing you can do is put them on, put them on the internet because you're just automatically sending me the message that they're not important. Well, so I'm totally jacked about that aspect. <laughs> I know it. you are. The thing that I'm afraid of really is that we're going to be asked to treat these events like normal UFC events, which from the quotes you just read from Dana White, which is the first I've heard them, it, it sounds like that's what we're being asked. And I'm worried that uh, the mixed martial arts media at large is not going to have the good sense to treat these events like what they are, and that is as not newsworthy. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, I think one of the things that's, that's really going to determine the success of this thing long term uh, is can you get it? on Apple TV and on Roku and on those other things. Because right now, if you're trying to tell me, like, it's just on my computer and you want me to pay for it and sit there and watch it, I mean, I, and again, I sat here this morning and, and watched some fights on my computer just playing around with the thing. Uh, but I just don't think that that's how people are used to paying for content. I mean, what we watch on the computer is free. What we watch on the TV, that costs money. We can we we have that in our heads. And I do think that they're smart to get a foothold uh, in this kind of digital programming sense because I think that's where we're moving. I don't think, you know, 10 years from now, we're still going to be doing the thing where we buy cable bundles that have a bunch of channels that you don't watch. I think we are moving more toward that kind of like a la carte thing. And, you know, I do most of my TV watching through Netflix streaming and HBO Go and stuff like that. So it does make sense that the UFC is kind of Positioning themselves because, hey, that Fox deal is not forever. You know, that has a, a, 
a lifespan on it and pay-per-view is probably not going to be a viable thing forever. So it is smart for them to start getting into this. Uh, but they need like right now when you ask them, well, when, are, when am I going to be able to get this on my TV? The answer is, well, we're talking to those people. There's going to be some negotiations and it's like, all right, when are you going to have all the fights on there? Oh, we're working on that. We're uploading stuff. It, like right now, all their answers for the, the questions about the biggest obstacles for this thing are, it'll be fixed at an undetermined time in the future. However, uh, you know, that, that is only going to get you so far. Like if you're going to tell us, hey, you have access to everything, eventually people are going to be like, hey, how come when I type in Vanderlei Silva, Mark Hunt, I don't get to watch it? Because that's what you're selling me is unfettered access, total control, uh, and you know, full look at your entire fight library and all the fights you own rights to. By the way, you can see your fill of affliction events right now. I know you're, you're pretty happy about that. One of the things I actually legitimately am excited about is that you get to go back and I, I guess watch that WFA main event where that's not uh, on there yet. That's not on there. <laughs> not oh, yet, man. That was they, the thing I was yeah, most they mentioned excited that too. about. I looked today. Not on there yet. There's All a right. lot of stuff that's not on there. Well, we did way too long on that question and didn't even address Darcy Ledoux's question about piracy, but I guess he'll just have to deal with that. Well, I guess. Okay. To quickly address that. Well, now, why is it an on. either or? Why is it either you pay for this or you pirate it? I don't. The next question comes to us this week from Darren D. He writes, when Chris Lieben couldn't answer the bell against Uriah Hall, I felt mixed emotions. The reason fans like myself love the guy is probably why he's nearing the end of his career at 33 years old. His game plan usually involves brawling like he's in a goddamn video game. So how do we as MMA fans wrestle with the dichotomy of loving the exciting yet reckless brawler and wanting uh, what's best for the health and longevity of a fighter discuss? You know, the Chris Lieben lost to Uriah Hall was one of the uh, saddest goddamn things I've ever seen and uh, would have been the saddest part of any normal fight card where a guy didn't later totally shatter both bones in his leg. Uh, <laughs> yes. And uh, uh, you know what? Uh, I thought it was sad to watch the, the, the demise of Chris Lieben's career and the way that it happened. But I also have to say, um, I think in a way the reaction to it showed how we have grown as sports fans kind of because, because everybody just didn't immediately call him a pussy. Right. Yeah. I saw a lot of positive reactions to it. And a lot of people saying like one of the most courageous things Chris Lieben ever could have done was quit on his stool. And like, you know, four or five years ago, I don't know that that would have been the reaction. So I think like, uh, it was, it was a moment where I felt uncharacteristically proud of, uh, this industry that I feel like we reacted to this situation in the right way because, you know, if, if Chris Lieben thinks that he got knocked out and he doesn't want to fight anymore and uh, he probably knows in the back of his head that his UFC career is over, uh, probably best for him to walk away without getting punched in the face anymore by Uriah Hall. Well, okay, there's a difference between knowing that his night is over and knowing that his career is over. We still haven't heard a whole lot from him as far as what he's thinking career-wise. It always seems to me like one of those things where, and you hear it when people talk about Chris Liebman, you've heard it when people talk about guys like Leonard Garcia, where, hey, you know, you can't fight like that for a long time. You know, you can fight like that and it's exciting and everybody will, will pat you on the back for it, whether you win or lose, but you are sacrificing longevity. You're not going to be Randy Couture fighting well into your 40s if that's your style. And it's fine, and those guys seem fine with it as long as that expiration date is always, you know, later, you know, some point in the future, as long as they don't have to deal with it right now. And when they get to that point where people are saying, okay, remember that point we all said was coming and that you kind of agreed with us? It's here. They never seem to agree with it at, at the same time. I mean, look at Leonard Garcia still out there fighting. So I, I, I'm interested to see what he does now after watching that. I, too, was just like, okay, 
I'm glad that he's not getting punched in the head out there still. I also, though, after something like that, how do you come back and say, okay, that was just a bad night for me. Now I'm back. Like, I, I think that the same things that motivate people to feel like, good job. We're glad that you didn't get up and get punched in the head some more will also make them feel like, but don't try and come back in three months and tell us how you've changed everything in the best shape of your life. Yeah, and I'm, you know, if, if Lieben walked away at this point, I wouldn't really be surprised. Uh, um, no, like you said, I would be really happy if he walked away at this point. Yeah, he's, you know, he's a guy who is a brighter than I think people give him credit for, nicer than I think people give him credit for. But he's not becoming an architect and, uh, anytime no, he, soon. While he's not going to become an architect anytime soon, there's other stuff that he could do, you know, right. fight-related stuff that wouldn't involve him getting murderized by a younger uh better strikers than he is. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Prob Singh. He writes, after the showing that Travis Brown displayed against Josh Barnett, I wouldn't be against him getting a title shot, getting the next title shot. Uh, discuss. You know, the last time we talked about Travis Brown on this show, uh, I thought that I was really complimentary about Travis Brown. It was right after he beat Alistair Overeem, and we talked about how it was a really good showing for Travis Brown, sort of established him as a contender, one of the top ten guys in the division. But I said that I, you know, it wasn't the kind of performance that I led me to believe that he was going to go out and beat Cain Velasquez or Junior Dos Santos. Uh, we got a bunch of uh, hate mail about that. Like, people kind of ripped into me and said I was being too... Too mean to Travis Brown. Like so too, we didn't get hate too, mail. Too critical. I'm you. sure they said mean things about you, too. I just didn't read those parts. <laughs> I just skim for my name. Uh, so, you know, the, the, this performance against Josh Barnett, I th- I'm going to try to be even more positive now here. You ready for <laughs> See, this? You're just telling the mob how you can so easily be influenced. <laughs> well, this was a good performance by, by Travis Brown. All of that yeah. aside, knocking out Josh Barnett with those same weird downward elbows that don't quite constitute illegal strikes right. uh, that he used to knock out Gabriel Gonzaga. And he looked good right before that, too. He, I mean, he, was, they, he was pretty much working Barnett on, yeah. on the feet. Um, so it is the kind of victory a little bit that casts him in a different light, I think, because now you go and look at his record and his only loss is the one to Bigfoot Silva, where he tore his damn hamstring yeah, with the first, first kick that he threw in the fight. And so you you see a this, this six foot seven gargantuan man who's got, you know, good good uh, stand-up skills and good takedown defense and 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 uh it could be a threat in the division. I still don't think that I see him beating Cain Velasquez or Junior Dos Santos, but uh and I I don't I don't think that I would give him the next title shot, but I feel like putting him in a number one contender fight against Fabrizio Verdum is exactly the right place for him. Right, and that's an point. awesome fight. That is an awesome fight. For yeah, sure. and he goes out there, calls Fabrizio Verdum's sweetheart, uh, which, you know, once once somebody explains the, the implication there to Fabrizio Verdum, I don't think he's going to appreciate it. I think the Go Horse is going to have something to say about that. Go Horse! <laughs> it's one of my favorite nicknames in the I know, entire sport. I know, it's so great. Uh, but... I, I think, too, that it serves both people really well, or at least the winner. It serves the UFC's heavyweight division very well, especially with Cain Velasquez out for a little while uh, after having surgery. You throw those two dudes in a fight that feels like a big main event kind of fight, um, and whoever comes out of that one, there's just no goddamn doubt that that guy deserves to fight for the heavyweight title. I mean, I do think with Fabricio Verdum right now, if he were to take try and take the tact of, well, I'm just going to wait and sit out and wait for my chance at King Velasquez. People, you know, will forget what you did and they will, uh, maybe not be so excited about it, but if you throw him in there with Travis Brown, either way it goes, I mean, that is the the kind of fight where you then end up with a huge heavyweight title fight at the end, either way it goes. Uh, and, I mean, like you said, I mean, I too had kind of thought about Travis Brown, well, okay, hey, he beat Overeem after Overeem gas, but you go out there and you knock out Josh Barnett, 
that's a, a really impressive win, a, like a legit victory. If you can then go out there and knock out Fabrizio Verdum, well, goddamn, we got to start taking you seriously. Yeah. Chad Dennis has got to stop bad-mouthing you at that point. <laughs> and I think that that's a winnable fight for Travis Brown, too. We'll just have to see how it plays out. Weird, though, that Travis Brown still, even now, seems really obsessed with this idea that he feels like people discount him as merely a striker. Which Nobody's I don't, saying that. I don't think that that ever even happened. Nobody but this is, is like saying that except for Travis Brown. The second or third time in a row that I he know. has used his post-fight speech to like give that same disclaimer and kind of be salty about it. It's getting weird, isn't getting it? Pretty weird, yeah. Yeah. It's like if you're constantly like going places and be like, I don't know where all this talk comes from that I have a small penis. I don't know, man. I mean, I wish I wish I knew who who was the source of that because they're totally wrong. Like, if nobody's saying it, man, don't keep saying it yourself. Well, who's going to get the hate mail now, then, folks? <laughs> uh, last question this week comes to us from Michael S. He writes, amazing submission victory by Jim Miller, but all this GSP and Anderson stuff has me thinking a lot about legacies. So my question to you is, will Jim Miller have one? I mean, here is a guy who has undoubtedly been one of the top 10 lightweights in the world over the past several years, but top 10 seems to be his ceiling. He's never gotten over that hump and beaten the very best. He's never gotten a title shot, and in his top years, he was likely stifled by the Frankie Edgar rematch show. Uh, so f five years, 10 years after he's done fighting, are we going to remember Jim Miller? And is it okay if we don't? Not every fighter, not every top fighter can be good enough to fight for the belt, right? Some are destined to just be very good and serves its purpose. And, and that serves its purpose. Discuss. Now I've got a bone to pick with you on this Jim Miller issue. What? And that is that every time Jim Miller fights, you steal my joke about Jim Miller looking like a 1940s uh, carnival wrestler and you put it on Twitter as if it's your own. Well, no, it's a, I thought I, a, a, a joint observation that we worked on together uh, one time when, I, th I mean, you were the first one to, to liken him to a carny wrestler, but then we had a lot of fun with that flight of fancy. Wow, you're totally Shia LaBeoufing it up over there on yeah. the couch just uh, with well, your plagiarism and your denials. Wow. Okay, I guess Chad Dennis wants full credit for being the first person just, to utter carny wrestler. Every when, time you, you use that joke, just cut me a check. <laughs> write me a check, put it in the mail, I'll be fine with it. Okay. Well, to the question. Yeah, no, brings up a good point about Jim Miller. Yeah, and, and a lot of people. This could be applied to a lot of different people. Uh, because... Yeah, how do you remember him when he's gone? Like, do you if if he never won the belt? I mean, I know that a lot. Like Chael Sonnen will say that if you never win the belt, you know, you don't retire, you just quit. But I think that, especially for the people who really follow the sport, it's kind of like you know, an awesome quarterback who never even played in a Super Bowl or something, but you recognize that he was pretty sweet, even if he definitely wasn't the best. There's a place for those guys, and the people who actually pay attention to the sport enough to not, you know, where they, they know more than just Ronda Rousey and GSP and Brock Lesnar, they remember that. And I, I don't, I think a lot of those guys, especially guys like Jim Miller, um, tend to get better in our memories once they're done. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I think Jim Miller uh, will be a beloved figure. I think he is a beloved figure. I think he's a, a guy that we can all agree on in a lot of ways, just as. Uh, you know, by being uh, the uh, hard-nosed, really, really good fighter uh, who at this point just keeps going out there and tapping out black belts. God damn it. Which, by the way, Ronda Rousey owes that man $75,000. She took his submission at the night bonus. <laughs> uh, uh, and, you know, like like the, uh, the the emailer says, not everyone can be champion, and I think that, that that's okay. Uh, we don't want everyone to be champion unless we're talking about the light heavyweight division, in which case... You know, and then it's just, you get the belt as like a certificate of achievement award before John Jones came around and, and 
took it home to to New Mexico. Yeah, or more like the heavyweight division where everybody everybody gets a chance to take it home and, and show their friends, and then they have to show up at their very next fight and give it away. Yeah, well, maybe we stand corrected. Maybe everyone actually can be champion. Uh, but no, I mean, Jim Miller, like, I think we all know what Jim Miller's deal is. He's a, he's a likable guy, a hard-nosed fighter. He has that that uh, walkout that, that is not iconic, but certainly uh, well-known at this point. And I think that, uh, you know, he, he probably will be remembered like a lot of guys who, who never quite became champion but are still very highly regarded by hardcore fans of the sport. Um, well, that, you know, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, or a concern for the co-main event podcast in future weeks, uh, you can hit us up by going to the website, comainevent.com and clicking the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. Uh, if you want to send us a gift through the mail, let us know. We'll give you our PO box and you can, you can send that to us. Uh, as for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, uh, this one was pretty legitimately heartbreaking to see go down the way that it did. Uh, Anderson Silva obviously uh, broke both bones in his left leg while throwing a low kick against Chris Weidman this weekend in their rematch at UFC 168. Uh, I, you know, it ended the fight that that was only two seconds, uh, I believe, shorter than their first fight, and. Uh, was really starting to play out eerily similar to their to their first meeting, uh, and then uh, you have you know what is either a freak accident or a a uh, uh, an well executed strategy, a well executed strategy by Chris Weidman. But uh, let's just talk a little bit about Anderson Silva first. Obviously, you don't want to see this happen. This kind of thing happen to anybody. But it seems particularly sad uh, that it happens to a guy who's regarded as the greatest of all time, especially if this uh, turns out to be his last appearance. Yeah. Not only do I not want to see this happen to anybody, I don't even want to know that this is possible to happen to a human being. Like having seen that, you saw it with Corey Hill and Anderson Silva. I think uh, uh, Jose Pele, uh, Landy Johns, or what? I think he had something like that happen once. Like. I don't. I wish I didn't know that that could happen to you because I don't want to walk around with that knowledge. Like, not that I'm like throwing a bunch of low kicks at people just in my day to day life, but I just don't even want to know that something could happen. Like, where you take a blow to the shin, which, like, you I mean you hit your shin on a coffee table, and you know you're going to be swearing up and down. To know that you could hit it so bad that then the bottom part of your leg and your foot will just flop around like an empty sock. God damn it, that's just horrible. Well, that's why I have the standing rule, never kick anyone anywhere except the nuts, <laughs> because you're probably not going to break both bones of your leg on, on another guy's nuts. Depends who's nuts. I guess that's true. I guess that, that's a good point. But yeah, you know, and you, you, I guess when this first happened, when we first, uh, when we first saw this go down, it was, it was pretty legitimately heartbreaking for Anderson Silva. I think we all felt to, to watch it happen. Uh, and, and the kind of graphic nature of it kind of made everyone immediately think, oh, well, you know, 38 years old, he's done forever. Uh, we got a somewhat less dire 
diagnosis today with the UFC released an official statement uh, saying that he had successful surgery and they had that, like a conference call right with this guy who did the surgery oh I didn't I didn't know that I just saw the, the statement but yeah. it, it, I, it's interesting that when dudes are on uh, TRT and stuff then medical privacy is of the utmost importance uh, but when Anderson Silva gets hurt then we, we're quick to organize a media call with the damn surgeon who's going to tell us that everything's fine but I don't think that the the thing people were seizing on necessarily was that that's such a bad break that guy will never fight again. I think it was that he could possibly come back and fight because we've seen people come back from that injury. But it takes a while; it might take you know a year or more. And at his age, if you you know factor in that recovery time and then him getting back in there, you would think that he'd probably be better off being done. Especially because he seemed like before this fight he was maybe considering being done one way or another, no matter what happened in it. Certainly didn't think his leg was going to break. Yeah, and I think that was definitely part of it, and and obviously the news that we got today uh, as, that I saw in the, the official statement and a couple other places saying a typical recovery three to six months, uh, maybe a little bit longer than that to, for somebody to get back into once again kicking another guy shape. Yeah, that's that, what I wondered. Is, that broken what leg. do you mean by recovery? Do you mean walking around? Right, but it, it seems like a, a somewhat less dire diagnosis for Anderson Silva than maybe all of our, we as medical doctors pronounced in the in the cage when it first happened um well, let's talk a little bit about how the fight was progressing because jesus christ this one looked like the first one uh chris weidman comes out pretty handily wins the first round uh you know you know uh stuns anderson silva on the feet out of the clinch and then winds up on top of him where he stays for the rest of the round kind of grinding it out in, in his guard uh landed some solid shots um and then in the second before the injury occurred it looked like anderson silva uh was kind of found his his this is going to sound terrible to say but found his legs a little bit oh god uh, uh, found his stride why why would you uh, do that and, and was was starting to to assert himself a little bit more and then obviously uh, the terrible injury do you think that we learned anything from this fight that we didn't already know well I think that the way that this one did not look like the first one is that you can't point to like Anderson screwing around and saying you know that's why Chris Weidman did so well like you you could do that with the first one this one no he didn't he didn't do any of that he was just getting beat playing it straight right you know and and he was getting beat and that's the the kind of the crazy thing about this is that you can look back on it and you can put asterisks next to to both of these wins if you want to and yet you can't really find you know a significant chunk of time in in almost uh what is it, like almost 13 minutes of fighting, you can't find a chunk of time where Chris Weidman isn't dominating. Right. I mean, that's the thing. If you look back on all the fights, say what you want to say about how they ended or exactly who was doing what when they ended, Chris Weidman is winning pretty much every second of these fights. Yeah, and and, and that's the kind of the thing that, that, that kills me a little bit about this situation is that uh, – you know, for I think you have to give Chris Weidman credit for both these wins. Now he's beat Anderson Silva twice, and I think that that probably is leading a lot of people at this point to to start to give give him the credit that he deserves. On the other hand, man, so many people spent so many months, uh, all six months of the Chris Weidman title reign so far, kind of denigrating the guy and trying to undercut his original win, saying that it was just because Anderson Silva was clowning around. It was just because uh, it was a fluke and it wouldn't happen again. And now in the wake of this second one, which I think objectively speaking is 
way more fluky than even the first one, suddenly everybody in the world is like, people just need to give Chris Weidman some goddamn credit. And, it's, and, and I gave him credit the first time, man. And if you didn't give him credit the first time, I don't see how you give him credit for this one. Because this one, if you put those guys in a vacuum and had Anderson Silva kick Chris Weidman in the legs 1,000 times, he probably breaks his leg once. It's it's like 10 times as fluky as the first one. I don't understand how this one is the one where people are like, well, now we're buying it. Now we're all in on yeah, this Chris Weidman character. Maybe because he nearly knocked him out before that happened, and that's what's factoring into people's feelings about that. I wondered about how it works for Chris Weidman to, after the dude suffers a horrible leg-breaking injury to end the fight, to go out there and like thank God. Uh, because as my wife pointed out in the immediate aftermath, no loving, benevolent God would allow something like that to happen to somebody. Like that part seems like where, you know, maybe he just wasn't quite sure how to play it. And it's a tough one to know how to play because he did like then go into the press conference and be like, yeah, I know I've been working on checking the kicks. Like basically like stopped just short of saying like my plan was to break his leg with, with checked leg kicks. It seems like that's part of the disconnect people are feeling with Chris Weidman is they're not sure how to take him personally. Yeah, um, and obviously it's a super awkward scene in the cage. Uh, Draped in the American flag, thanking God for breaking that man's leg. Right. I'm not going to kill him too much for it, though, just because... Like, even if you are going to go to the post-fight press conference and say that that's something that you trained for, which I'm sure it was, uh, God knows you wanted to check those leg kicks since that was pretty much Anderson Silva's only weapon in the first fight. At the same time, like, you don't expect the dude to suffer a horrible leg injury. And, like, when that happens in in the heat of the moment, I think it would be pretty hard to react perfectly to it. You know, the most awkward part, I think, is Chris Weidman putting up his hands and running around the cage as soon as it happened. But, like, again... How are you going to know how to react in that moment? Like, it, it seems to me like you got to cut the guy a little bit of slack in that situation just because that's not something that anybody expected. Yeah, that is true. But, you know, now I think one of the things that uh, really works out for Chris Weidman is that there's we know what's going to happen next. It's going to be Chris Weidman and Vitor Belfort. And the, the run that Vitor Belfort is on right now, Chris Weidman, I think, needs a guy like Vitor Belfort. He needs, you know, if he's going to solidify himself as the successor to, to Anderson Silva, he needs to go out and beat a guy like Vitor Belfort right now um, because that's the one where people then, like, if he goes out there and dominates Vitor Belfort, who's just been kicking people upside they damn heads, then I think people will look back on those Anderson Silva fights differently. Uh, they'll be like, well, hey, the endings might have been weird to those, but through no fault of Chris Weidman's own, uh, you know, he, he beat this guy who was just, rolling through the middleweight division clearly he's awesome uh and those were just you know some some weird hiccups at the the beginning of his title reign uh then again though you know if you end up being one of the people who Vitor Belfort kicks upside the damn head I think it also throws those Anderson Silva fights in a different light people say Anderson Silva was getting old and careless and his bones were brittle and and that's the only reason you got to have a cup of coffee with the belt yeah, no, and I agree with you that I think Vitor Belfort is exactly the foil that Chris Weidman needs at, at, at this point. I think it would be uh, pretty huge in terms of solidifying his credibility as champion if he can go out there and, like you said, uh, stop this tremendous run that, that Vitor Belfort has been on. Uh, I saw somebody on Twitter, I can't remember who it was, but they described Vitor Belfort's look at UFC 168 as futuristic Macklemore, which I thought was uh, about perfect. Let's. Here's one thing that I do want to talk about about this fight before we move on. Uh, 
I feel obviously this is the UFC expected this to be the biggest pay-per-view of the year. Tons of people tuned in who don't normally watch UFC pay-per-views. Uh, the main event, which is supposed to be the biggest deal, ends in totally bizarre fashion. Uh, obviously, some mainstream sports writers took the opportunity to to pile on as they do. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time talking about them. But am I correct in thinking that it seems like MMA for lack of a better term, kind of steps on its own dick. Like when, when <laughs> wait, mo- you, you think that there was, there could possibly be a better term. That's <laughs> the, that is the term. Well, well do you think that, that, that this kind of, sh- or as Gus Johnson would say, this stuff happens in, in MMA. It seems to me like it always happens when the, the sport tries to present itself in front of a large audience. You know, Anderson Silva breaks his leg like uh Kimbo slice. As soon as he starts to get some buzz, gets knocked out by Seth Petrozelli. uh strike force tries to make a big deal out of Fedor Emelianenko. Obviously he craps the craps, the, his pants steps on his own dick. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, you got the, the strike force brawl on, on CBS, uh, is it just me? Am I am I being too too harsh, or does it seem like like whenever the sport is in the in its biggest, whenever it gets a biggest moment, like something totally weird happens? You know, it does seem like that has happened a few times, and this one is definitely unfortunate. And that is, I admit, one of the things that went through my mind, along with how the hell am I going to write about this uh, when that that ending happened? But I, I mean, I think for the like. It could be one of the instances where you get them in the door with the Anderson Silva, Chris Weidman stuff. And there's, I mean, if people bought the pay-per-view, there's plenty of other stuff on there that was awesome. Like, right. I don't think they're just going to go away being like, oh, so this is what happens when I when you pay for an MMA event? Some dude that gets his leg snapped in half and I have nightmares for two weeks? Like, the, well, the nobody wrong... with any sense would think that, but clearly those aren't the people who are writing for newspapers. Well, okay, those those people will die soon, so <laughs> I don't I don't worry too much about. I mean, they or their newspapers will die soon, uh, maybe Ouch. both. Ouch! Uh, but I, I mean, I don't worry too much about that, especially because, man. You remember what happened to Joe Theismann's leg? Like, that shit wasn't pretty either. But we didn't all decide that football was bullshit because of it. Like, I think that if plenty of people tuned in to see it, they didn't, you know, if they had half a brain, did not come away thinking that, like, MMA is just a freak show of horrors. Um, because the thing that made this card awesome and made it one of the biggest pay-per-views of the year was that the UFC kind of got back to its strength, which was building out awesome pay-per-views, like, you know, from from the bottom up, not just like loading it with one big main event and then a bunch of filler. I mean, you had Rousey Tate, you had Barnett Brown. You know, you had you had a solid undercard all the way through, uh, and I think that that is what made this such a huge fight card, not just the Silva White rematch. Yeah, well, the people who bought this one uh, probably came away thinking Ronda Rousey was awesome, and we're going to talk about that in round two. Uh, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me first, and then, then we'll move on with that discussion. Ben, this week, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me, while possibly predictable, I've decided to entitle Diego Brandao Misses Weight in three parts. Huh, interesting. Part number one is that right before Diego Brandao missed weight on the UFC weigh-in show on Fox Sports 1, as he was approaching the scale, Chael Sonnen said that he had picked Diego Brandao to not only win this fight, but to be a future champion in the featherweight division, at which point all of us sitting around at home went, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. Part two okay. was when he actually got on the scale immediately after this statement was made and weighed in eight pounds heavy, which, you know, hey, Chael, I've been there, man. They're like, that's a that's a punch in the old bread basket right there when that happens. <laughs> so I think when we found out how much overweight Diego Brandao was, we said, are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. 
Not to mention the fact that he threatened to stab Dustin Poirier in the neck, I heard. Yeah. Uh, part three of the Are You Fucking Kidding Me is when he actually showed up at the fight and he was in the, the, the Harley Davidson prep point or whatever they call it these days. And uh, the UFC broadcast team just mentioned in passing that, oh, yeah, the reason that he missed weight was that he had been in a bad car accident while training for this fight, and it uh, prevented him from training or cutting weight. But apparently he was good to go for the actual mixed martial arts contest, which is the third thing that made me say, are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? What's your are you fucking kidding me for this week? Well, my are you fucking kidding me, and this might just be because, you know, we live in a cold northern climate. But I'm sitting around, it's December, you know, late December, my, my driveway ha- has snow piled up in it, uh, I've been recently hearing from Dana White about how the economy is bad, and that's why sponsors aren't, aren't selling people, or aren't, aren't buying space on dude's shorts, and Mac Danzig has to, you know, make a big statement about it, uh, and then I look at Dana White's Twitter, and it turns out that for Christmas, he has imported a bunch of snow to fill his driveway so that his kids can go sledding out the front door down the driveway. This, in Las Vegas, in the bad economy, uh, while those of us are, are sitting around here with actual snow that we're trying to get rid of out our driveway. Are you fucking kidding me with the zany rich guy shit? Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? It's just a normal guy. He's Crazy just a rich fight guys? fan like us. Yeah. A fight fan like everybody else. <laughs> Well, that's pipe and report snow to the American Southwest. <laughs> that's going to do it for round number one. We're going to get started with round number two right now. Chad, UFC women's bantamweight champion Ronda Rousey doesn't care about her bad reputation, as we were informed by her walkout song. Went out there, judoed the fuck out of Misha Tate, armbarred her, and then said thanks, but no thanks to the post-fight handshake. People in the MGM Grand Arena went nuts. Your thoughts? Your thoughts on the uh, complete refusal to shake hands? I know you're into the gentlemanly shit. Did you, did you lose your mind at that point? No. Uh, well, first of all, the fight was awesome, so I hope that we get a chance to talk about that. Uh, I don't think so. You know, the, the, Probably won't. I, do, I don't think that Ronda Rousey obviously came off well with a full season of reality television behind her. Uh, as for her refusal to shake hands with Misha Tate, I didn't care, really care one way or another. Um, like we've talked about on this show before, I think one of the problems with uh, – uh, women's MMA up to this point has been that everybody's just too motherfucking friendly, uh, to quote the wire. And so I think that it's kind of good to have a, a sort of roguish champion who, uh, who acts the way that she acts, uh, uh, as the, the, the person that everybody's gunning for. Uh, and frankly, I think that it's probably in, uh, totally shrewd of Ronda Rousey to, uh, to play that up, regardless of the fact that she continues to, uh, uh insist that it's just her, her being real, uh, Except for when she says that it's her realizing what role she's in. Right. Because like it can't be both. She's ba- is she yeah. Batman or is she Two-Face in that analogy or Scarface? First of all, I'm pretty sure she I know sure you spent meant, a lot of time trying to figure this out. So. She meant Two-Face. 
But in that analogy, she is Batman allowing the world to think that she is evil when in fact she is the most good. Um, which nothing says like humble down to earth person like comparing yourself to a superhero for one thing. Um, but also, yeah, you can't really do the thing of like – it's like when John Jones was like, oh, OK, I'll accept the blame for my company's decision. Well, you already just put the blame off on the company. So it's not accepting the blame if in the second part of the sentence you say that the blame belongs on somebody else. That's not taking the blame. It's not – you know, if you're – if you're accepting the the role or keeping it real or whatever, you're not. You can't really do both at the same time when you're talking about it that way. But I do think it is good for the women's sport as a whole because when have we had like a women's champion at any level who had that that kind of appeal that that Ronda Rousey has, and that I think is part of the thing that makes her a superstar. She came out there. And there are people there who absolutely love Ronda Rousey. There are people here who, who who hate her and want to see her get her head knocked off. And there's pretty much nobody in the middle. Like everybody feels something about Ronda Rousey, right. which is impossible to be ambivalent. Right. About Ronda and Rousey. if you're a pro fighter, especially one getting a cut of the pay-per-views, that is exactly what you want. And that's the thing that women's MMA has really been missing, you know, and uh, and it also it makes it easy on her opponents who might not know where they fit into the narrative. Like it's always easier to just be like, well, I won't be the person who like flashes the middle finger and and yell stuff. And then by default, I'm the nice one. I'm the classy one. I'm the one who offers to shake your hand and you're the one who, you know, walks away because of some perceived slight to your family, by which I think she means training partners. Yeah, she has a liberal definition of of what is her family for sure. Um, But you know what? Like in the sudden absence of Anderson Silva and George St. Pierre, I feel like uh, I and I think a lot of other people came out of UFC 168 thinking that Ronda Rousey might well be the biggest star in the sport right now. And uh, I think a lot of that is because of of that attitude. And and I think that uh, that that's going to work, work well for both, you know, her her appeal to fans or, or the exact opposite. And I think it's going to work well for her bottom line. I think she's probably going to make a, a shitload of money. And I think as evidenced by the fact that Dana White came to the goddamn press conference with the poster for her next fight, I think the UFC knows that at this point. Let's talk about that for a second because I think that is interesting. That for one thing, uh, Ronda Rousey mentioned that Dana White had talked to her before the fight about this next fight with Sarah McMahon. Um, which makes you wonder, did he also talk to Misha Tate about it? Because I'm going to say he probably didn't. I'd like to think that they had two different posters printed out, right? One of them <laughs> one for, for Rousey Tate, Tate 3 yeah. and one for, for Rousey uh, McMahon. Um, the other thing, though, is before, like in the day or two before this fight, uh, Dana White came out and was like, hey, Kat Zingano is next. Kat Zingano is still the number one contender. We haven't forgot about her just because she got injured. Uh, you know, she gets to start training again in March or whatever she'll, you know, so she, she's next. Uh, that clearly was a lie and he knew it was a lie when he said it. Uh, so I guess I wonder why, why they do that. Why lie about that? Uh, because it's not like that really served any purpose other than to maybe like momentarily placate Kat Zingano or to momentarily like reassure people that there was a plan after this, which I don't think was a big concern. Like why go out there and lie about that? 
if you know that you have something different planned. And it's not unreasonable to have this other plan because Kat Zingano is still a little ways from being able to come back. Rousey's been gone most of the year uh, doing movies and stuff, so I can understand why you'd want to have her have a quick turnaround because, as you said, some of the, the big draws are going to be missing, in the, especially in the early part of next year. I just don't understand why you would go out of your way, essentially, to lie about something like that, especially because, man, you know how much Dana White likes to fall back on, like, the, hey, I tell you like it is. Like, do I ever, you know, do I ever bullshit you? No. I, I, you know, and it's like, the more times you lie to us, the less it means when you get up there and, and try to play the straight shooter role. Yeah, well, when the Cutco knife salesman comes to your house and says that he's not going to bullshit you, like, we all know what the deal is. He's going to tell you that's the best knife in the world and cut through a piece of rope and throw a rusty tin can. He's probably one of your friends from high school, so your mom's going to buy a steak knife or something because she feels bad for him. Well, I mean, and there's so many situations where you need to cut through a rusty can. It's invaluable. <laughs> we, we, we know what's up with when it comes to salesmen. Uh, let's talk about the actual fight because uh, I thought it was stellar. Um, in a weird way, Misha Tate did a lot better than I thought she was going to do, which is weird because she still totally got tooled. Uh, but, uh, she, she looked better than I thought she would in the scrambles. She was able to put Ronda Rousey in some bad positions, even though she wasn't necessarily able to really capitalize on them. Uh, it kind of felt like Misha Tate was sort of on defense the whole time. I thought it was uh, really frustrating to watch Misha Tate in this fight. Yeah. She came out with probably the worst game plan she could have had, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, when she's on the feet, she's doing well. She has, she has her moments there. But every time, you know, you try and change levels and shoot for a takedown or grab Ronda Rousey in a clinch, it goes badly for you every single time. Why keep doing it? Like, why? Like, what do you think is going to happen in the third round that was different from what happened in the first and the second round? I don't understand that aspect of it. But, I mean, it did give us a chance to see Ronda Rousey in a lot of different positions and to see her pushed, you know, out of the first round and, and see how she handles that. And, that, I mean, that was good. It also gave you an opportunity to see... Uh, especially maybe this is just more jujitsu nerd stuff, but like somebody who has an awesome arm bar that opponents are always worried about, you'd think, man, if you also then developed a secondary attack with a triangle choke, you'd be just fucking killer because uh, like that's usually what happens, if, especially if you're trying an arm bar like out of the guard or something uh, is if they're able to pull out of that, then they leave themselves open for a triangle. And she kind of, there, there was a moment where she thought about it, but you can tell like when it comes to locking up the triangle, like the arm bar is just second nature to her. Uh, the triangle is something where she's going to try it out and see how it works. You know, like there, you could see at various points and also in her stand-up game that there's some room for improvement there or room for other people to capitalize. I mean, and also if you're an Olympic wrestler like Sarah McMahon is, then I think one of the things you learn from this is the double leg is probably not the takedown for you against Ronda Rousey. You might want to think about, you know, a single leg or something like that. Uh, but it does then make it really interesting to see, like now that we've seen more of Ronda Rousey and seen a little bit more of her game, uh, it does make you think about some of the more interesting matchups out there for her. Yeah, she went almost three full rounds here and didn't seem like she was about to get tired. So that was one potential Achilles heel that we can go ahead and cross off the list. And didn't freak uh, out about getting hit in the face. Yeah, about Ronda Rousey. The thing that I think uh, is so uh, interesting about her skill set, uh, aside from the fact that she just appears to be at another level athletically than a lot of the people that she's fighting at this point, um, you know, she's got her her game is 
at the at one on one hand so kind of one dimensional, but on the other hand, uh, she is so uh, you know, as Ray Longo said about Anderson Silva. Uh, I think that you know those judo throws and the armbar and stuff are at this point just ingrained in the fabric of who she is, and uh, she's so good at it that. Uh, it's hard to stay out of it. And I think that in a division where not a lot of people are going to knock you out with one shot, uh, it's going to be hard for anybody to stay out of her game in a way. So uh, one of the things that I think is interesting about her is that, yeah, she's one dimensional, but it's one dimension that uh, you're eventually going to get stuck in during a fight. Right. And, that, and she's and, just so much better at it than everybody else. It's like some of those judo throws that she does on Misha Tate in this fight, just so fast and so instinctual from her that there's almost no way. Like I think we said last week, once you get in what I called judo range, like you're pretty much done. There's nothing you can do to defend it because she does it so instinctually. Right. But I do think that she is also getting by a lot on strength and athleticism. Uh, and she has that advantage over a lot of the, the women in MMA and especially in that division right now. And she was the one who was quick to make the point, right? Like, hey, I'm an Olympic athlete and Misha Tate's a high school wrestler. Uh, not so with Sarah McMahon, who is an Olympic silver medalist wrestler. Uh, a little bit better than the bronze medal that, that Ronda Rousey won in judo. So I am interested to see how that plays out because I don't think she necessarily has a huge athletic or strength advantage over someone like Sarah McMahon. And also, of course, you know... Whenever Ronda Rousey wins a fight from here on out, I think everybody's going to stop to wonder, but what about Cyborg? How would you do against Cyborg? If she didn't have that strength advantage, if she had to go against, you know, somebody who's a powerhouse who could uh, end the night with one shot. Uh, And I, you know, I don't think that this fight necessarily a did anything to make me think that she would do any better in that fight. uh, If she had to fight Cyborg or B made me any less interested in seeing it. Yeah, and you know, my gut tells me that we're going to see, we'll see Cyborg Rousey in 2014. Uh, because really, that soon, huh? I, I do. I think that because I think that the UFC is going to need to sell some pay-per-views, uh, which I think we're going to talk about in round number three. Yeah, man, digital uh, network, it'll be fun. Before before Jimmy we Manuel, get into that, though, we're, we're going to do uh, uh, something kind of special since this is our last show of the year. Man, we're going to do our uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me's of the Year. Um so why don't you go ahead and kick it off? What this year was your biggest, are you fucking kidding me, for the entire calendar of 2013? You know, it's possible that I'm falling prey to the classic MMA judges uh, error in remembering most what I've seen most recently uh, and putting undue weight on that. But come on, man. Cody McKenzie showed up to a fight without any shorts, had to have some shorts bought from at the local sporting goods store, went out there with fucking pockets, pockets on his shorts, and the and tag. tag. He's going to return them. The tag still on them. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. That was both awesome and ridiculous. Are you fucking kidding me? Then Herb me? Dean rips the tag off, can't return them. Thanks, Herb. Thanks yeah. a lot. Yeah. Hope, fucking kidding me, Herb. I hope Herb left a 20 spot in Cody McKenzie's <laughs> locker later as sort of an apology. I don't think you're falling victim to... Uh, to to you know uh just taking what the last thing you just saw was that that's a pretty legitimate are you fucking Wrote kidding the me Alaska moment of area the year. code on there in a marker because he's like okay well hey i can't go out here with just these plain shorts i'll look ridiculous <laughs> i gotta do something well my are you fucking kidding me of the year a little bit more subtle and let me say as an aside how the fuck did war machine get out of this without being somebody's <laughs> are you fucking kidding me of the year but maybe 2014 he can you know, go a little harder oh, and wind God, up if, in the Are You Fucking Kidding Me of the Year. If we're still talking about War Machine in 2014, I quit. <laughs> but this, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me is the moment during the, uh, 
UFC 20th anniversary fight for a generation uh, public relations documentary that they produced for Fox, where one of the, the producers from The Ultimate Fighter actually starts fucking crying when he's talking about Dana White showing up on the, the set of the show to give the do you want to be a fucking fighter speech because the, the fighters were mad that they found out they had to fight a bunch more than they thought they did for and free. For free. Uh, are you fucking kidding me, dude? You start you actually tear up and start crying. You're not even on the show. You're just one of the producers. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. Because people will fight for free and you cry about it. That's television magic right there. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, as we sit here on the cusp of 2014, uh, I suppose that it's only natural that we spend some time reflecting about the the year that just passed, 2013. Um, Right now, if I had to pick a dominant storyline for the year and one that is going to affect 2014 as well, um, it might very well be that the UFC lost its two longest standing, arguably most bankable champions uh, within just a couple weeks of each other, really a few weeks uh, with George St. Pierre uh, announcing his indefinite leave of absence to go check out the bright side of life and uh, Anderson Silva then succumbing to this horrible leg injury against Chris Weidman, which is going to put him out at least for you'd think most of, of this next year. Uh, so I think when I look back on 2013, that is what I'm going to think of. And it certainly sets the UFC up for a very interesting 2014, uh, among which of the questions it will have to answer is how the hell are you going to sell pay-per-views, man? Like who, who are you going to prop up as your next big superstars? Uh, and I guess only time will tell about that. When you think about 2013, what, what to you, uh, typifies this year? You know, one of the things I, and maybe this is just me because this does seem like something that I'm more interested in than other people are. Uh, we know what you're going to say. We all know the run that Vitor Belfort has been on. Yeah, see, we knew. Obviously, just if you looked at the numbers and you looked at what he's done and you didn't know anything about what anybody has in their bloodstream heading into these fights, Vitor Belfort, hands down fighter of the year, right? Oh, yeah. Not only that, uh, knockout of the year, uh, probably with when he kicked Luke Rockhold in the face. I mean, pick your knockout. You could argue comeback fighter of the year while suddenly rocketing to the top of the middleweight division. You could argue breakthrough fighter of the year. You could give every award this year to Vitor Belfort as long as you didn't care that he's obviously enhanced. Except submission of the year. Yeah. you. I mean, you you look at the guy uh, and it's a great story. The guy who was, you know, this super bright talent early on in his career kind of fell off. We were like, Oh, well, he never lived up to his potential. Now he's in his mid thirties, comes back looking better than ever. Just looking ripped up, you know, thanks to Jesus, uh, and goes out there three fights against an increasingly impressive, uh, list of contenders, knocks them all out, just fucking dominating people out there looking awesome. Definitely the top middleweight contender, no question that he's had probably the best year of any MMA fighter. 
And yet, there's that TRT stuff. A guy who has like a positive steroid test on his record, a guy who you know, suddenly rejuvenated in his mid-30s thanks to this, we're told, totally legitimate treatment uh, just restores him to normal hormone levels, even though no one seems to know how he got to subnormal hormone levels to begin with. I mean, and the fact that the UFC has kept him in Brazil this entire year. Three fights, all of them in Brazil, because we're told Globo, uh, their Brazilian TV partner, loves him so much. I mean, this to me is just the huge controversy that won't go away. And it, the reason it won't go away is because Vitor Belfort keeps doing so well. And now, obviously, you know, it's Vitor Belfort, Chris Weidman, and where this fight happens seems like it's going to be as big a story as what happens in the fight. Yeah, you know, one of the questions that we got this week from listeners asked us if they went ahead and booked Chris Weidman against Vitor Belfort in Vegas and uh, Vitor Belfort got uh, approved for a therapeutic, therapeutic use exemption for testosterone replacement therapy in Nevada, if that would convince us and or anyone else that he was competing clean and uh, – I had thought about this a little beforehand, but then thought about it again when I saw the email. I had to say no, right? Because nope, not that alone, no. Uh, it it uh, it's it would be hard at this point to take anything that Vitor Belfort does at face value uh, if he's going to be on testosterone replacement therapy, even if it's approved by a, by a commission. Uh, and that I think speaks to the level of disbelief that we and some other people have about the performances, you know, like uh, I don't know at this point how you come back from being Vitor Belfort, the unbelievable face kicking futuristic Macklemore uh, who, who just dominates everyone. Uh, you know, I don't know how you rehabilitate your image from that. Well, and I don't know if we're talking about the same email, but I saw one of them that said, you know, how about if, as a condition of his licensing and of his exemption, the Nevada Commission uh, subjected him to like the the same scrutiny that Josh Barnett was under uh, for his fight, where you know just random testing, uh, unannounced testing several times throughout his training camp, would that be enough to satisfy us? Uh, and I think you know that would be a good start. And certainly, if the Nevada Commission were to give him an exemption, and I think that that is a big if. Uh, it should impose some kind of rule like that because otherwise you don't want to set this precedent where a guy can test positive for steroids in your jurisdiction and then a few years later come back and say, oh, what do you know? I have low testosterone, a known side effect of steroid use, the thing you already caught me doing. Uh, now let me have permission to use the performance-enhancing substance that basically erases the consequences of my own actions, then you're, you're a methadone dealer at that point. Like, I don't think you want to do that if you're in the Nevada State Athletic Commission. I also don't think that as much as the UFC wants to kind of exert its control and its will over the Nevada Athletic Commission, and we've seen Dana White go off on tirades about it and about how Vitor Belfort, there's no reason he shouldn't be able to fight in Nevada, the UFC needs... Uh, independent, you know, state-run or government-run, if you guys the UFC, it needs some outside commissions to give us the sense that there's some legitimate controls at work here. Because obviously the UFC can't be held responsible for it. It secretly approved Bigfoot Silva's testosterone exemption, and look how that worked out. Like, it, 
it needs somebody else to be out there doing this stuff. Uh, like the same way the UFC always likes to say that it ran towards regulation, you know, when Zufa bought the UFC. It needs that. And it needs that, especially in the case of Vitor Belfort, because what happens if that guy becomes your middleweight champion and nobody buys it? Everybody thinks that you're just propping up a steroid user and you'd rather not deal with the questions. I mean, every time Dana White talks about him and says stuff like, oh, he's so fast and so strong, it's unbelievable. You know, like, and when Vitor himself talks about it and talks, you know, he always loves to reference this God-given ability that he has. And we're like, man, if it's all from God, then why do you need your doctor to write you a prescription to take these shots? Like, I would think that God would be more powerful than your doctor. Or, okay, listen to this quote. And it throws everything into a different kind of light. And this is Vitor. He showed up uh, before the press conference started after UFC 168, answered some questions about, you know, Silva's injury and Weidman and everything, and asked about the Weidman fight. His quote, If you study the animals in the jungle, some animals they hunt and all that, but the most dangerous animal, and that's why they call him the king of the jungle, is the lion, because he's unpredictable. That's what, I'm unpredictable. People think, now the kick, here comes the hand, there comes the wrestling, then jiu-jitsu. I thank God for giving me the strength, the ability. I know without him it would be impossible for me to do that. First of all, no, that is not why the lion is the king of the jungle. The lion is actually fairly predictable, but he's big and fucking strong and fast and has huge claws and teeth. Like, you want to really create this analogy? Like, Vitor Belfort, the same thing where everybody says, oh, look how big and strong and fast Vitor is. And then also we're supposed to pretend that the TRT he's taking totally doesn't matter. It, it drives me crazy. I can tell. I can tell. You just totally hijacked this round. Bennett just talking about Vitor Belfort's testosterone replacement therapy again. No, no, no. You want to talk about who can sell pay-per-views. That's fine. <laughs> well, one of the big those big fights that the UFC is going to have in 2014, obviously, is Chris Weidman against Vitor Belfort. Uh, we've also got the welterweight title uh, – a vacant welterweight title up for grabs with Johnny Hendricks uh, fights Robbie Lawler. Uh, clearly, the UFC is getting Ronda Rousey back in the cage as quickly as it possibly fucking can. Eight weeks from now, when she fights Sarah McMahon, uh, I think that they're probably going to try to put John Jones in the cage uh, at you know two or three times th this year against uh, Glover Teixeira at UFC 172, I believe, and then uh, Alexander Gustafson, and then possibly by the end of the year with uh, Daniel Cormier if Cormier manages to beat Rashad Evans. Uh, what thing are you looking? forward to most in 2014 so we can try to close out on a positive note unless you're going to use find some way to twist my question and talk about how you the thing you're looking forward to the most is Vitor Belfort losing a fight <laughs> that's the thing I don't wish ill on Vitor Belfort I just wish that this TRT shit wasn't a thing uh, but you know I think the thing is John Jones I, I don't understand why John Jones is not a huge pay-per-view draw because I think that like talent wise John Jones is probably the best dude out there right now and the the year that you just planned for him, if the UFC can get him, you know, keep him healthy and he can get in the cage three times, I think the Glover Teixeira fight is the least interesting of the, the three that you mentioned. Uh, I don't see any reason why John Jones wouldn't be your go-to superstar, uh, even ahead of Ronda Rousey. Because I think like right now, like we said, like Ronda Rousey is kind of benefiting from the fact that women's MMA is a little bit behind men's MMA. Uh, but John Jones is in what has historically been one of the, like, Best divisions in MMA are the most exciting. You know, the MMA's version of boxing's heavyweight division has always been the light heavyweight class. And I think that when you got guys like Gustafson and then possibly Cormier lined up for him later on, I mean, that could be a huge year. Like, this could very well, if he's able to win all those three fights and stay healthy and, and fight all, all those three fights in this year, there's no reason 2014 couldn't be the year that John Jones takes over as, you know, the new Anderson Silva, the new GSP. 
I have to admit, I'm really interested to watch Johnny Hendricks fight Robbie Lawler, even though I think it's probably a steamroll for, oh, for, man. for Hendricks. Uh, you know what I'm saying? That is going to be fun, though. That that's that's going to be a, a good one. Um, all right. Well, let's do uh, just saying stuff, and then, then we'll get out of here for this week. Um, ben, this week, my just saying stuff uh, is going to be my uh, – since we're, we're at this time of year – uh, my prediction for 2014, and that is going to be uh, what the main event of the final show for the UFC in 2014. It's it's traditional New Year's Eve area circa time show that we just saw UFC 168 year end. for this week year, year end, end show. show. There you go. Uh, and we have we have to do our our 2014 predictions for Bleacher Report this week, and I was I was trying to think of what mine was going to be, and then I finally realized what the year end main event for the UFC is going to be. Oh, good! And that is going to be Anderson Silva returning to the cage to fight George St. Pierre. Boosh! Just saying. Well, write that down right now, everybody, and then dig a hole in your backyard and put it in there, and then dig it up again so you can hold it over Chad Dundas's head. My just saying this week, Chad, I guess it goes out to kind of at least a large portion of the MMA community that totally geeked out over the announcement that the UFC was going to have a special press conference uh, before UFC 168 uh, and suddenly leapt to the conclusion that it, the announcement was going to be the return of Brock Lesnar. As in Brock Lesnar, the dude who retired and then went back to pro wrestling, Brock Lesnar, the 5-3 and three MMA fighter who pretty much retired as soon as he had to start fighting real dudes. He started beating the hell out of him. That's what you all got so fucking excited about is the possibility of Brock Lesnar, who we had kind of figured out was not going to be a legit MMA fighter, was more popularity than anything else and some natural ability. That's the shit you guys all freaked out about? What the fuck does that say about us? I'm just saying, man. Just saying. Leave Brock Lesnar out of this. 36-year-old Brock Lesnar coming back. Missing huge chunks of his colon and whatnot. <laughs> fucking kidding me. Wow, another are you fucking kidding me to close out it's the show? It's a year-end show, Chad. It's a year-end show. Anyway, that's going to do it for us for this year. We'll be back uh, next week, the first week of 2014, to talk about more crazy mixed martial arts-related stuff. Uh, I don't know what that's going to be yet, but we'll figure it is out. Is it going to force you to watch the Singapore thing? No, hell no. I'm not watching that. <laughs> Come on. I'll tell you all about be it. Be real. Uh, as for right now, though, that's that's the show. We're done. We're through. We are out. What if the uh, the Singapore card included, like, you know, some other, like, regional attractions? Like, like what if there was a cockfight? You're into that, right? Well, see, here's a, that's the thing I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that the UFC eventually is going to realize that nobody wants to watch these fight pass shows, and so it's going to start. Like-